Hello, this is David Penn, the Professor Penn Podcast, and welcome back. Uh, please remember, uh, subscribe, hit the like button. Uh, we're building a community, and um, I want to start out by saying that I got a lot of feedback on the last podcast, and uh, I got a lot of criticism on one issue, and I want to just address it. I said how old I was, and I had a lot of people tell me I shouldn't do that. It was really interesting because it was the only thing in the podcast that I did from a personal perspective, so I want to just clarify that and move on. When I was in my 30s, I didn't think I was going to make it to 60. The nature of my life at that time, the things that I was doing, and I would always tell myself, man, if I make it to 60, I'm in the bonus zone. So I was bragging to myself, and I apologize for anybody who was offended by me uh, mentioning that, particularly to uh, my Chinese audience, which I cherish. And I do know that um, mentioning your age in China and in Chinese culture is uh, rather uh, unseemly, so I I do want to apologize. I want the Chinese audience to tune in because um, I have a, a deep love of China and Chinese history and uh, Chinese uh, martial uh, life and, and discipline. And I, I do believe that uh, there's many Chinese people who are interested in, in the world of the spirit. And they, they know that uh, uh, when China was uh, subjugated by the communists in 1949, the first thing Mao did was wipe out the spiritual and historical history of the spirit in China and replace it with the status communist government. So there's uh, many, many, many millions of Chinese people that are searching for a spiritual life. And I hope they congregate here because I'm very uh, sensitive to that and very uh, interested in that. And I've studied Chinese uh, uh, spiritual traditions my entire adult life. So uh, please accept my apology. I've learned. I thank you for commenting. I'm listening and uh, we'll just move on. I'm going to learn and we're a community and uh, let's talk to each other. So in that podcast, uh, uh, for those of you that weren't here, I just want to review. I was uh, going back through a a history of uh, how science and the scientific method came to dominate American life. Uh, Because before World War II, we had a much more spiritual and I have to say Judeo-Christian background in the country, our educational system uh, before the progressive era, which started in the early 1900s, was very Christian in its orientation. <clears throat> and the country's history was really taught from a Christian perspective. Uh, it was only uh, with the dawn of the progressive era, which uh, was really about the time of, of Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson, that the education became uh, more progressive, more orienta- orientated towards science and technology and math. And uh, this uh, technological orientation, the scientific orientation, of course, what we talked about in that for, in that last podcast, you know, its its high point, its culmination was the detonation of the atomic bomb, and the establishment of American hegemony, and the new world order, uh, which uh, I was trying to make the case that uh, we established our dominance on a very um, uh, specious kind of. Uh, uh, capability that being to kill millions of people in an instant. Uh, today, I want to take a look at the other side. You know, everything has two sides to it. One of the things that we we lose in, I think, our Western tradition is the fire and ice or the yin and the yang. There's always a polarity, a, a relationship of, of, of opposites or a, a complementarianism of opposites. 
And we had this very intense scientific um, uh, history here in this country, which has been very dominant, but we have an equally potent uh, intellectual tradition. And I want to take a look at some of the intellectual tradition uh, that is not scientific, that's more sociological or political, and look at how these two traditions are intertwined and really end up at the same point, that point being a country that has lost its faith, lost its way, and become very dependent on materialism. And uh, I think that that is a, um, a setup for uh, unhealth. And uh, my theory of the case is, is that our government, our people, need to be focused on one issue, the well-being of every citizen. My well-being, your well-being, how do we learn to be well, how do we maintain our well-being? This is completely distinct from health care. Health care is another issue. Well-being is a connection to the natural way, a connection to spirit, and we're not taught that in our schools anymore, and I think our churches and synagogues and mosques are becoming deficient uh, to varying degrees in teaching it, and I think it's very critical for the uh, restoration of a functional country. Those of you who think the country is functional, well, we'll have to start there and have that conversation, but I think there's ample evidence that uh, the country is really uh, struggling uh, spiritually, uh, in terms of uh, how the people are living, financially, morally, we're living in an age of um, uh, of, of degradation. Uh, so, in fact, Mr. Producer, did you get that uh, picture or that bit that I sent you from the Grammys? Did you? Can you cue that up for later? Because we have uh, many uh, indicative uh, uh, evidence that uh, we're living in a world that is unprecedented. Uh, but let's, let's go on here. I want to start out uh, with, uh, we talked a lot about uh, President Roosevelt last time, and I want to just show um, and share with you one of his most famous uh, uh, presentations. Could you roll that, please? At the White House, Washington, the President of the United States talks with confidence about Allied intentions and hopes. The Russian army will continue its stern offensives on Germany's Eastern Front. The Allied armies in Africa and Italy will bring relentless pressure on Germany from the South. And now the encirclement will be complete as great American and British forces attack from other points of the compass. The United Nations have no intention to enslave the German people. We wish them to have a normal chance to develop, to develop in peace as useful and respectable members of the European family. But we most certainly emphasize that word respectable, for we intend to rid them once and for all, of Nazism and Prussian militarism and the fantastic and disastrous notion that they constitute the master race. The doctrine that the strong shall dominate the weak is the doctrine of our enemies, and we reject it. God bless us all. God keep us strong in the faith that we fight for a better day for humankind 
here and everywhere. Well, that was uh, that was great. I mean, this is a Democrat president. Uh, he has been uh, President Roosevelt has been well for many people. He's 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 uh, other than Lincoln the greatest president. He served for fifteen years before he died, and uh, he was a very leftist president. And you know, in hindsight, looking at this and listening to him, uh, his leftism was very American. Uh, his leftism was born of uh, great income inequality and economic suffering, and I think he believed that uh, to have a functioning American community, we had to have a more equitable distribution of uh, wealth. Uh, but this is so cool because in the last podcast, I was talking a lot about Darwinism, and we don't. And I said Darwinism had really permeated our institutions. And here's an American president, the American president, the president of the World War II era, saying that as an American president, we reject Darwinism, which is the domination of the weak by the strong. It's the survival of the fittest. And President Roosevelt said we utterly reject it. It's the philosophy of our enemies. And then he went into a long series of, uh, of, of prayers, really, uh, invoking God as a juxtaposition to this Darwinist idea. And this is phenomenal. And what's really, you know, thought-provoking is how far we've come from this. And I want to just say that the origin of the species, or Darwin's theory, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was published in 1859. <clears throat> so this particular uh, uh, speech that Roosevelt gave was uh, was only some 80 years after the origin of the species was published. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Mr. Producer. November 24th, 1859. Memory serves correct. So we only had about an 80-year gap, maybe 85, 84 years, between when uh, Darwin published his, his theory of the uh, origin of the species, and it was completely unsettled in this country. Here is the penultimate Democrat leftist president uh, really uh, sp speaking directly against the Darwinist theory and invoking God and saying that uh, this is the theory of our enemies, of our enemies. Yet this very Darwinist idea has come to dominate every institution of modern, current American life. This is what I want to talk about. I think we need to understand how we got to where we are. But, you know, really, uh, talking about the scientific method last week and this week, we're going to be talking about sociology and politics and how they were intertwined to create this materialist uh, world we live in today that completely blocks out spirit, and without spirit, there's no well-being. Uh, I want to go back to what I identify as the starting point of how we got to where we are politically. And that was something called the Atlantic Charter, which for some reason, again, has gone off into the mush of history. I don't know why. It's a critical document, a critical, critical time in American history, in world history. And uh, Mr. Producer, let's just get into this Atlantic Charter. We got two pieces on it. Let's play bit number two. historic session of the Inter-Allied Conference in St. James's Palace, at which representatives of 11 nations and the Empire adopt the Atlantic Charter. Mr. Eden presides. 
Gentlemen, before I introduce the, the formal business, uh, I would like to discuss and secure your approval of the procedure which we contemplate. I propose to introduce a resolution regarding the recent statement issued by the President of the United States and our Prime Minister, Mr. Churchill, and to invite its acceptance by the Allied governments. To the Council Chamber comes the echo of those momentous words uttered during the historic August Conference on the High Seas. That all men shall be enabled to live in freedom from fear and want, and that aggressor nations shall be disarmed. Okay, so this is uh, this is a classic. Uh, you know, there was World War One, and then there was World War Two, which is basically one war with a break in between. And World War One was devastating for the British. Uh, their casualties were profound, and it, it was a, a horrifying, bloody conflict. Uh, really, an entire generation of young men were sacrificed. And, you know, Britain at that time had financialized its empire, uh, much like the United States has done today. Uh, they had lost a lot of their production to the United States. Uh, there was a, an instability in the British Empire, and it was a very far-flung empire, much like the American Empire is today. Uh, there was the Indian Brit, the Brit, the Brits were in India. They were in the Middle East. They were in Singapore. They were all over Africa, uh, and they, you know this was a very difficult uh, enterprise for them to maintain and fight the Nazis at the same time. And here was America, a relatively new and vigorous and muscular country with a huge industrial base, a healthy population. Uh, people had been you know, basically living as you know on the land as farmers. Uh, up until the early part of the 1900s, we have a very well population, very strong, backbone, proud. And here's Churchill coming to Roosevelt. And, you know, Roosevelt, you know, I again, I, I say these things. I wish I was in his head, and I, I, I'll do more research. Uh, I know that what Roosevelt wanted to do was end the British colonial empire. Roosevelt was a committed leftist. He did not believe that... Uh, the strong should dominate the weak. He said it very clearly in that speech. And uh, here was the British Empire dominating millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people throughout the world, South Africa, uh, you know, just everywhere there was this colonial enterprise going on. And the leftists in America believed that the, the wars were in large part caused by this colonizing sentiment that existed in the European powers, be they German be they British, be they French, be they Spanish, that the period of colonialization had really destabilized the world. And of course, what were we? We were a colony of the British, and we threw off British imperial rule through our Revolutionary War. And I think that's another critical uh, dimension of American life that has somehow gone away as we've gotten caught up in our entertainment devices. But we at this, this is a long time ago. This is the 40s. It was relatively close to the period of time when we threw off British uh, uh, imperial rule. And, of course, we had another war with the British, the War of 1812. We were at war with these people. But we did have a cultural tie. And after the War of 1812, which is something I think we're going to explore in the future, the cultural ties between Europe and the United States were extremely strong. And we had the people in this country that came here to worship as Christians to 
practice an essential kind of Christianity, which they could not practice in Europe. They were really immigrants of religious religious protesters or seeking religious freedom. And then we had another group of people that came here to pursue the business model of the crown, which my theory of that case is they got three primary businesses, drugs, slavery, piracy. And if you take a look at the early history of this country, which now exists to this day, we're, our country is in the drug business, both illegal and, and, and legal, big time. We have wage slavery. We had slavery till 1865. And piracy is inflation. So we, we, we've maintained this kind of business model. And I think this is part of the instability in the country is, is dealing with what really is the original sin of the country. And I think it's this business model. And Roosevelt was, you know, running a country, trying to move away from this business model. Uh, I think he was very sensitive to to the well-being of the people. He was invoking God. He was discrediting and fighting against this survivalist um, idea that the the strong are destined to dominate the weak, which was the the sentiment. Per, per, it was certainly the the Nazi sentiment, and any ethno-nationalist group, be they German, if it's German ethno-nationalism, Chinese ethno-nationalism, Japanese ethno-nationalism. There's other groups that I'm not even going to say because I I want to I want to keep my powder dry. But if you have an ethno-nationalist group that has a very homogeneous culture, and it looks down on other groups as subhuman, which is often the case, uh, you have a, a recipe for racism and for domination. And Roosevelt was rejecting that. And of course, America was already what was called a melting pot, a place where diverse groups came to become part of the American experience. And that was not a nat, an ethno experience. That was not an experience based on a person's um, tribal identification. It was based on a set of ideas. And that is so spiritual. In other words, if my involvement in a group is based on my ethnicity, that's based on the materiality of my flesh. But if my involvement, and that's very material, flesh, but if my involvement and in, in loyalty to a group is based on my adherence to a set, of an, a set of ideas, like the Constitution of the United States, that's a very much more spiritual identification. And this, is, this was something I think that was, Roosevelt was into and what he was telling Churchill. You are going to give up your colonial empire. Churchill had come to Roosevelt, hat in hand, saying, we cannot resist the Nazis without your help. And Roosevelt had a, had a country, the United States of America, that really did not want to get involved in World War II. There was a very strong anti-war movement here. European wars are for Europeans. And Roosevelt had an identification with Europe. Possibly, I'm not sure what was in his mind, possibly saw the opportunity for the United States to become the king of the hill, the top dog in the world. But he knew that Churchill needed his help, and he was a leftist, and he did believe that the Darwinist idea was, was foul. And he said to Churchill, hey, you want my help? No problem. When have you ever known me to refuse an accommodation? But he, he demanded a favor, and that favor was the Atlantic Charter. Now, that last piece we saw was a very attenuated version that was clipped from the British newsreels. What Roosevelt did was quite um, mafioso style. He made Churchill go on record 
And I'm going to uh, ask uh, Mr. Producer to play Churchill's speech and his his commitments in the Atlantic Charger Charter, which was the quid pro quo, you arm us, you defend us, you fight fascism with us, and we will commit to, and please play this speech. The President of the United States and the Prime Minister, Mr. Churchill, representing His Majesty's government in the United Kingdom, being met together, deem it right to make known certain common principles in the national policies of their respective countries on which they base their hopes for a better future for the world. First, their countries seek no aggrandizement, territorial or other. Second, they desire to see no territorial changes that do not accord with the freely expressed wishes of the peoples concerned. Third, they respect the right of all peoples to choose the form of government under which they will live. And they wish to see sovereign rights and self-government restored to those who have been forcibly deprived of them. Fourth, they will endeavor with due respect for their existing obligations to further enjoyment by all states, great or small, victor or vanquished, of access on equal terms to the trade and to the raw materials of the world which are needed for their economic prosperity. Fifth, they desire to bring about the fullest collaboration between all nations in the economic field with the object of securing for all improved labor standards, economic advancement, and social security. Sixth, after the final destruction of Nazi tyranny, they hope to see established a peace that will afford to all nations the means of dwelling in safety within their own boundaries and which will afford assurance that all the men in all the lands may live out their lives in freedom from fear and want. Seventh, such a peace should enable all men to traverse the high seas and oceans without hindrances. Eighth, they believe all the nations of the world for realistic as well as spiritual reasons must come to the abandonment of the use of force since no future peace can be maintained if land, sea, or air armaments continue to be employed by nations which threaten or may threaten aggression outside their frontiers, they believe, pending the establishment of a wider and permanent system of general security, that the disarmament of such nations is essential. They will likewise aid and encourage all other practicable measures which will lighten for peace-loving peoples the crushing burden of armaments. Well, if anybody wants to uh, track back the beginning of the New World Order uh, when it was actually established, that speech is the establishment of the New World Order, and it was the end of the old world, the old world of colonialism, of European hegemony. Uh, There's quite a bit of scholarship that's been done about this speech and about this uh, relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill as regards this issue. Uh, what what has come out of it, and of course we don't know what was in these people's heads. Uh, Churchill was a, a a an absolute committed uh, British colonialist and uh, believed in the empire and wanted to maintain the empire. Uh, but he was forced to uh, 
to, to give this speech by Roosevelt. It's quite gangster, actually, of Roosevelt. He said, you want the guns, you want the money, get on your knees, this is what you're going to read. And Roosevelt uh, enforced it. Churchill later said that, uh, you know, this was about uh, Nazi tyranny in Europe. Uh, but actually, the words that he spoke about uh, self-determination of all people really uh, presaged the end of colonialism. It, it, it ushered in the period of decolonization. And this was something that the United States wanted. And that line in there about uh, commerce and free traverse of the seas was really the establishment of the free trade uh, paradigm, which uh, really grew after World War II and reached its high point under uh, President Barack Obama and started to uh, be reversed by President Donald Trump. So we're, we're looking here at this, this, is, this Atlantic Charter, for all of you that are listening and want to be students of history, go back and read it, go back and listen to this speech, because people go, what is the old world order? What is the new world order? Well, it's right here. Everything you need to know is right here. And m my belief is this was actually quite well-intentioned. People hear the new world order and they go, it's very negative, and it is, it has become very negative. Uh, and and my, my, my comment on that, and I said this last time, it's not these institutions, it's the people who inhabit the institutions. Because when you eliminate faith in God from a society and you take sacred honor out of the interactions between men and women, uh, people revert to this kind of survival of the fittest, this Darwinist uh, struggle for uh, uh, the strong versus the weak. And we get away from the soaring idealism that was associated with the concept of self-determination. Now, I know there's others that are going to look at this and listen to this and say they had this kind of uh, world domination and hegemony baked in. And this was, this was a 2.0 uh, version of that, uh, excuse me, um, it was the, it's the 2.0 version of this um, uh, hegemony. This old world was transformed to a new world, and they knew what they were doing. And that may well be the case. But we also had the opportunity to establish a much better world after the horrors of World War II, and that's what this Atlantic Charter was all about. So this Roosevelt idea of decolonization was utterly overthrown. He died before he finished his fourth term. As I said last time, he had a very simpatico vice president, Henry Wallace, who served three terms as vice president. And that vice president, Henry Wallace, was deposed by a group of much more, shall we say, military industrial complex oriented politicians led by the Secretary of State Jimmy Burns in that fourth Democratic convention. And they brought Harry Truman in, and the policy of this country shifted. And we're living in the, the prop wash or the aftermath of the change between this, this very soaring rhetoric and what happened right after the war. But this rhetoric, this, this, this Atlantic Charter, opened up a series of liberation movements that are sweeping across our world to this day. And the first of these liberation movements was really the liberation in this country, in the United States of America, of Jewish people from the scourge of anti-Semitism or the repression of anti-Semitism. And, you know, Jewish people uh, before World War II in this country, in the United States of America, 
lived in ghettos. They could not uh, perform professional uh, roles. Uh, there was violence. There was killings, lynchings, rapes. Uh, these, this is suppressed information. Uh, but then, and there was worldwide anti-Semitism. We had the high point of it was the Holocaust. And that Holocaust opened up a big change in this country. Uh, Mr. Producer, could you play this next bit? changes to Auschwitz in Poland, where Kramer and others were previously employed. Behind the lines of barbed wire, more than four million men, women and children were scientifically murdered by gassing. In this camp, victims torn to pieces by savage dogs. Extermination was the fate of all who were not fit to be active beasts of burden for the Reich. Sick and old persons and pregnant women went straight to the gas chamber. Everything at Oxfitz was done with hideous precision, even to the slave numbers on their arms. Jetzt gehen sie wieder zurück ins Leben. of opening the first trial in history for crimes against the peace of the world imposes a grave responsibility. The wrongs which we seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated, so malignant, and so devastating that civilization cannot tolerate their being ignored because it cannot survive their being repeated. Their fate is described by witness Rudolf Hess. I commanded Auschwitz until the 1st of December 1943 and estimate that at least two and a half million victims were executed and exterminated there by gassing and burning. So there's going to be um, viewers who are going to think I'm shilling, and I'm not. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be starting a, a podcast soon with uh, a very uh, noted political theorist and candidate, Royce White, that we're going to call Hebrews, and we're going to go into some of these issues in great depth. It's not my intent to do that today. What I'm trying to draw out today is, is that historical events uh, – <clears throat> Historical events changed the uh, orientation of the world to minority groups. Now, 
Jews had suffered anti-Semitism for thousands of years, and it was baked in the cake that Jews were going to be discriminated against, just like it was baked in the cake that blacks were going to be discriminated against, or baked in the cake that women were second-class citizens, or baked in the cake that homosexuals were going to be repressed. And this Atlantic Charter about the free uh, determination of peoples to chart their own self-governance opened up a completely new era in, in world history. And this was something that Roosevelt enforced upon Churchill. But let us also not forget that these things are quite complicated. Roosevelt refused to bomb the railroad tracks that led to that Camp Auschwitz. So this extermination of the Jews or this, this anti-Semitism was so widespread, it was thought to be correct. And the mass murder of these Jews, and it, it was so devastating and had such a bombshell effect on the human psyche that it actually opened up an opportunity for our country, for the United States of America, to examine its attitudes about Jewish people, and it allowed Jewish people actually to integrate fully into American life. But it was not without quite a bit of work. Now, Hollywood was, of course, uh, the script writers and the studio owners were uh, a lot of Jewish people there, and so they picked up this theme, and there were some great movies. Probably most of you have never heard of this movie, but it was a bombshell movie in the 1950s, called, maybe it was the late 40s, called Gentleman's Agreement. In fact, I asked young people, have you ever heard of Gregory Peck? And Gregory Peck, who starred in this movie as a news reporter, a Christian news reporter, who went undercover and impersonated being a Jew to understand the ravages of anti-Semitism in his community, People haven't even heard of Gregory Peck, and he was a fantastic male model. And, uh, and when I say model, I mean people look to his behavior as a man and said that's what a man is, courageous and, and, and charismatic and principled. And we grew up, you know, watching this kind of behavior, and we said that's how we need to act, courageously and honestly with sacred honor. So this movie— really brought to the fore uh, some of these issues. And this is the, the, the most important scene of the movie. If you could just play it, and we'll go through it. I was Jewish for eight weeks. Why, Mr. Green, you're a Christian. But I never... Well? But I've, I've been around you more than anybody else, and I never once... Oh, what's so upsetting about that, Miss Williams? You mean there is some difference between Jews and Christians? Well, look at me, look at me hard. I'm the same man I was yesterday. That's true, isn't it? Why should you be so astonished, Miss Wales? You still can't believe that anybody would give up the glory of being a Christian for even eight weeks, can you? That's what's eating you, isn't it? Now, if I tell you that that's anti-Semitism, your feeling of being Christian is better than being Jewish, you're going to tell me that I'm heckling you again, or that I'm twisting your words around, or that... It's just facing facts, as someone else said to me yesterday. Face me now, Miss Wales. Come on, look at me. Same face, same eyes, same nose, same suit, same everything. Here, take my hand. Feel it. Same flesh as yours, isn't it? No different today than it was yesterday, Miss Wales. The only thing that's different is the word Christian. And so for uh, those of us who are watching this for the first time, 
and I and I have to have I've known about this Is movie for a very long free time. Free money from the government. Uh, the uh, the juxtaposition or the criticism of Christianity as being somehow repressive. Uh, this has been around a long time, and I'm going to tell you I reject that, completely reject it. Uh, that was a scriptwriter in Hollywood that had an agenda. Uh, I don't think Christianity is uh, is repressive at all. In fact, I think Christian men in this country and women in this country have gone to great lengths to fight for the human dignity of of the of the downtrodden and the and the, and the repressed. And I think that's one of the greatest uh, gifts of Christianity to modern American life. Uh, so I want to say that, but I wanted to bring out this movie because this liberation movement, the Atlantic Charter about the self-determination of peoples, followed up by the awareness of the Holocaust, opened the first liberation movement, which was the opening of American society to this repressed group, the Jewish community. And it moved very quickly. <clears throat> Jewish, the Jewish people integrated into American society very, very quickly. And it was really because of the uh, space that was opened by awareness of the Holocaust. That was a very high price to pay for freedom. That was six million people died in a very short period of time. And remember what was said. They were scientifically gassed. Interesting that that, that bit used that scientifically gassed. It was the application of science in the prosecution of mass murder. And then they said right next to it, and wild dogs rip people, fierce dogs rip people to death. So you had both things working. The savagery of our ancestral past where wild beasts could kill a man or a woman. And you had the scientific, the flowering of the scientific method let loose for mass murder. Both things were going on in those camps. So that horror opened a space for these liberation movements and for the Atlantic Charter to be carried through. Of course, the Nazis, the Japanese, and the Italians were defeated, and the United States inherited the British colonial enterprise because Britain was completely uh, wiped out. I mean, they were just exhausted by these two world wars. And I, you know, I think it was probably—I don't know for sure—but I, I can. I, my opinion would be that President Roosevelt always had in his mind that it was America's turn to be the preeminent uh, country in the world. And he was really enforcing upon the British the deconstruction of their empire and the establishment of what he thought was American values. And what was the core of that value? Self-governance. 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 Why are we having the problems in our country today that we're having? We're no longer self-governing as the American people. We have decided that we have better things to do then participate in our own self-governance. That's what we're going to be talking a lot about. And you can see that that concept of self-governance, but we don't even hear anybody talking about it anymore. I mean, self-governance means every day and in every way. And the uh, opening of this idea of self-governance, uh, the Jewish people kind of got a pass because of the Holocaust. It wasn't so easy for black people in this country or any other country in the world. Uh, black people were thought to be inferior and they were repressed and savagely and brutally treated throughout the world, not just in the United States of America, but throughout the world. Africa had been colonized. 
uh, traditional African uh, political and religious structures had been repressed. Uh, they had been, uh, you know, they had kind of an enforced uh, conversion to Christendom. Uh, it was really a, a horrifying uh, experience for the black community. And in the 50s, of course, there had been a black liberation movement in this country going back before the Civil War. That's why we had a Civil War. But there was never a complete, and to this day, there's never been a complete freeing of the of of some of these communities from uh, different kinds of bondage. And great leaders started to rise up in the 50s and the 60s. Um, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and started to you know uh, sensitize the the black community to their liberation. And these were very organic movements. I'm not going to say that there wasn't a Marxist element to some of these movements because Marxism was a prevailing uh, ideology uh, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries and into the 21st century because capitalism was associated with the oppression of minority groups. Uh, it's my case that it's not capitalism. It's the business model of the colonial enterprises, slavery, drugs, piracy, Capitalism is not inherently slave-taking or profiting from drugs or piratical. It's the people that twisted that business model for their own personal greed and gain. And, you know, leaders rose up. Some of them were Marxists, but the, the, the leadership was very organic. This was part of the post-World War II democratic liberal order, which talked about self-determination, self-governance. And this was a beautiful idea, and it was very American. It was, it was as American as we get, is that we self-govern and that we're, we're a community of people that pursue their own well-being. Because it's my theory of the case, you cannot be well without freedom. You cannot be well unless you are free. And if you're free, you got a shot at well-being. So let's take a look at this, this bit from um, uh, Malcolm X. for you and me to devise some kind of method or strategy to offset some of the events or re a repetition of the events that have taken place here in Los Angeles recently, we have to go to the root. We have to go to the cause. Dealing with the condition itself is not enough. And it is because of our effort toward getting straight to the root that people oftentimes think we're dealing in hate. We are oppressed. We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against a common enemy. Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin? 
to such extent that you bleach to get like the white man? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate? You should ask yourself, who taught you to hate being what God gave you? And I, for one, as a Muslim, believe that the white man is intelligent enough. If he were made to realize how black people really feel and how fed up we are without that old compromising sweet talk. Stop sweet talking him. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how, what kind of hell you've been catching and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. Some very provocative rhetoric from Malcolm X. And the, uh, the key here is the liberation of the people that came forth after the Atlantic Charter uh, was established and, and we went into this new world order, which was about the freeing of the people from the old world order. Now, this is such a beautiful sentiment. And again, the institutional ideas were correct. It's just that the people that got control of the levers of power backslid and started to weaponize this set of freedom movements into something to, again, uh, repress and destroy the people, something we're going to be talking about as we go through the rest of this podcast. But the idea that a, a, a black leader could go into Los Angeles and talk about uh, the oppression and the exploitation, the 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 destruction of the black community, the lack of civil rights and even human rights in such a powerful and eloquent way. This would have been impossible before the Atlantic Charter, before Frank Franklin. It wouldn't it wouldn't have been allowed. It just would have been repressed. And that is what is so interesting that there was an old world order that was in control. There was a transition to a new set of ideas, that these ideas were born in World War II, that the, the Jewish community got a pass because of the Holocaust, but the black community fought for and is still fighting for the kind of liberation and access to equal opportunity that is so American, so much a part of our Constitution, so, so much an outgrowth of the philosophy and the ideas that underlie what our founding fathers bequeathed to us. And it's very important you know, we get a little bit insular. This liberation movement was international. It was going on all over the world, particularly in Africa, but also in Asia, Philippines, Indonesia. And I just would like the Mr. Producer to give the viewers a chance and listeners a chance to listen to what was going on in, in Africa at the exact same time. Cape Town is tense, so is the whole Union of South Africa. Where it is calm outwardly, the news is all of race hatred. Everyone feels that the next day, even the next hour, may see parliamentary government swept aside. 
Opposition leader Sir Davilius Graf joined with Defence Minister Erasmus in sympathy for Dr. Verfurt. Mr. De Vetnel, Minister of Bantu Affairs, agreed the no policy change decision, no lifting of apartheid. Whites only notices seem more sinister than ever. In the coloured areas, only the children are unaware of the powder barrel atmosphere. Armoured cars and armed police swooped onto the Nyanga township 10 miles from Cape Town, aided by spotting aircraft. 1,500 natives were arrested and questioned. 162 were kept in prison. And this was before the attempt on Dr. Fairfoot's life. The police station had been fired by rioters. One of their objects was to destroy the records of the passes they detest having to carry. This happened, we repeat, before the Prime Minister was shot. Had the would-be assassin been a coloured man, who can say what the consequences would have been? When workers go home to the township during the brief twilight, darkness falls on fear of what the day may bring. Meanwhile, the outside world looks for the return of sanity and peace to South Africa. Oh, this battle went on a long time. This was long before South Africa was liberated. A long war of liberation was fought there. And the point here is, is that all over the world, this Atlantic Charter, this New World Order, which I, I guess, again, there's a lot of people that are going to say it was set up to be hegemonic from the beginning, but there was certainly a lot of light that came in with this change. And all over the world, there was these liberation movements. Uh, and here comes uh, the women's liberation movement in the 1960s. We'll just play it right, right back to back because it's all part of the same opening, the same uh, change. At the present time, uh, it's a sort of watershed, I think. Um, women are apparently liberated in many ways, but in fact and in practice, they're not. They're still discriminated against in many professional fields and in, often in very pernicious ways. Um, I think the time has come when women have got to find self-respect and a full identity of their own. And that's what's, that's what's very difficult for them. And the battle that we have to fight is not against men, it's often against women, actually, to try and get them to fulfill themselves. What would you like to say to thousands of women listeners who <laughs> imagine that they're enjoying life at the kitchen sink? Women unite. You have nothing to lose but your kitchen sinks. So we had all these liberation movements, and as I said, they were quite or organic in their derivation. I've been getting paid $1,000 But then, a month. Um, the 1960s brought about a big, big change. Um, the the post-war period had uh, something called the GI Bill, and the GI Bill included a government subsidy for returning service people so they could attend university. The universities were a bastion of conservatism, and you just couldn't go unless you were rich. I mean, it was it was really a 
very stratified class type society. Very few uh, uh, middle and lower class people could put together the money to get into a Harvard or a Yale or a Princeton. And these institutions, therefore, were generating a generation after generation of you know, landed gentry of wealthy people who were uh, defenders of that status quo. These liberation movements were really uh, challenging that status quo, that, that um, oh, that, um, that oppression that came out of the academic institutions. These academic institutions had been thoroughly penetrated by Darwinism, uh, they were. They became progressively scientific. Uh, that's where the money was, and the sociology and anthropology and political science departments became progressively Marxist. This was just the intellectual movement, the materialist movement that was associated with the 20th century. And then when you got the, uh, you know, really really poor people who had fought and risked their lives in the war, and they came home, they had a chance to go to the university with a subsidy. Now we really had an acceleration of Marxism uh, in the American university and college system. And these people had an ax to grind. You know, President Roosevelt, we heard it. He was uh, anti-Darwinist, pro-God. He had a completely different perspective than the academics and the politicians that started to proliferate just 20 or 30 years after his death. And, you know, change is slow because the status quo was resisting this liberation because it turned over some people's dog bowls. Uh, in other words, the money stream was getting affected. And things were kind of uh, getting complex that, that the university system, as it became very Marxist, really started looking at overthrowing the entire system. And let me just delve into this for a second. There are liberation movements that lead to unification. And there are liberation uh, uh, movements that lead to chaos and and mass death. And I think we're we're at the crossroads here in the United States of America. We have all these liberation movements, which is what the subject of today's podcast is all about. What are we going to do with these liberated people? Uh, We're liberated. I'm liberated. Am I going to learn the history of the United States of America and... uh, dedicate myself to the Constitution and the lofty ideas that are within that Constitution? Is that what I'm going to do as a liberated person? Or am I going to decide that the original sin of this country is slavery, it invalidates the entire political history of the country, and I want to burn it down? That's the crossroads that we're at. We're there for the uh, Native American community, the black community, the uh, women's rights movement, the gay rights movement, every one of these movements is, is confronted with this decision, the Jewish community, are we going to have an alliance in, in, to each other as Americans, united by a set of spiritual ideals, or are we just going to burn this bitch down because it was vile from the start? And th- th- what I'm trying to say to, to myself, first of all, because I've had to work this through in my own head, because I've had a long history thinking about this, and I'm, now I'm saying it to everybody else, I'm pretty sure that the ideals and the ideas that are in, in, embedded in our Constitution, that we are uh, created 
with unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That one idea is enough to unite all of us, that there is a creator and that we are granted natural rights that cannot be abridged, that should not be abridged, and that we need to be vigilant to maintain our freedom. Why do we lose our freedom? Because we don't work for it. Freedom is well-being. Well-being is something that we have to develop, that we have to maintain, that we have to ensue and pursue. And what ended up in the in the universities, in the in the institutions of higher learning, the the decision was made that the 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 problem was capitalism and that the capitalist system of the United States of America needed to be destroyed and we need to rebuild the country because in capitalism we have different levels of success. And that, you know, of course, is anti-Marxist. And, well, that's where we're at today. What are we going to do with this great American experiment? And, of course, the Atlantic Charter, so noble in sentiment as time went on, and it was hard to implement the ideas of that charter, uh, there was, you know, great, great controversy. And, of course, this went right into art. What's great about art, music, uh, theater, uh, the zeitgeist of the day is captured. And no one captured the zeitgeist of this time more eloquently and was, a, uh, you know, really the spokesperson for it than a, a singer. Most of you probably have heard of him. Some of you haven't. Please check him out. Bob Marley. And uh, I would just like everyone to listen to this song because it captures this time perfectly. Whoa! 
Mozambique South Africa, yeah Subhuman bondage, yeah Has been doubled, yeah Utterly destroyed Well, everywhere is war This your war So there it is, the Atlantic Charter set to music. Could not be said more eloquently, without human rights, the world's at war. That was the theory of the time. And interestingly, this is a, a song that Bob Marley composed. It was actually first a speech that Haley, Haley Selassie gave at the United Nations. Haley Selassie was the uh, president or the leader of the king of Ethiopia, and he uh, went to the United Nations to, to plea for liberation and for freedom. And Bob Marley turned his speech into this, you know, epical song. Uh, interestingly, he talks a lot about international internationalism, and there was a, a fairly uh, well-developed uh, school of thought that said we couldn't have peace without an international governance, which clearly Bob Marley had, uh, you, you know, was reciting what Haley Selassie had said because, you know, Ethiopia was a weak country and was being preyed on by strong countries. So the weak was looking for a an international governance which would uh, put a guardrail on the ambitions of the strong and protect the rights of the minority, of the weak. Uh, we've become, I think, from my perspective, it's very clear to me that this is where we've gone wrong now in a historical perspective by moving governance progressively far away from the people. And when you move that governance to higher and higher structures, to greater and greater structures, and remove it from the people, the people become oppressed because the feedback loop between governance and governed is broken just by distance, let alone by intent or evil intent or uh, just the, the malfunctioning of human beings when they're put into big structures. Governance works best when it's local, uh, when it's uh, at home in your own backyard. So what I do is I self-govern. I self-govern myself physically. I self-govern myself politically. I participate in the political process. And when we get into this international thing, this United Nations thing, obviously I have no voice in the United Nations. And that's the problem with this international theory. It was an idea. You have to have a lot of ideas to have a good idea. We experiment with ideas. And if we're wise, when we realize an idea doesn't work, we discard it. The same way the Atlantic Charter discarded colonialism. It was a failed human experiment. It didn't work. It was exploitative. It was the strong ruling over the weak. It was an anti-Christian Darwinist concept. And it was overthrown in the World War II period. And we set up this new world, 
and all these liberation movements that went even into the sexual domain. Could we play this next bit, please? On this historic day, Steve Hartman reflects on the long road America is traveling. It's been nearly 50 years since CBS News first took on the subject of gay rights. It was in a documentary. You'll recognize the host, Mike Wallace, but you won't recognize your country. Most Americans are repelled by the mere notion of homosexuality. The CBS News survey shows that two out of three Americans look upon homosexuals with disgust, discomfort, or fear. This was 1967, and whoever named the program cut straight to the chase. CBS reports the homosexuals will continue in a moment. The show was so controversial, not one sponsor would touch it. In fact, the very notion of gay rights was brand new. I'm a country boy, I guess, because I couldn't believe this. I mean, I didn't know this was a problem over here, or at least I didn't think anybody would have a sign out about it. But for me, the most telling part of the program was a bizarre interview with a man shrouded by a houseplant. I don't go looking for homosexual relationships. Apparently, back then, just admitting you were gay required some fairly dense foliage. You are now husband and husband. Now, of course, gay couples can show their love without so much as a ficus. On the steps of City Hall, with every network watching. I know that still makes some people uncomfortable, but they'll get used to it. In 2000, I was best man at one of the very first gay civil unions in the country. My best friend, Nicholas D'Ambra, and his now husband, Jim Bachlion, went to Vermont for the ceremony. Fifteen years later, they are happily married with two great kids. And when I look at this family, all I see is love. We end as we began, with a homosexual. So much has changed in the last 50 years. But one thing hasn't. At the end of the show, the guy behind the plant said something that could have just as easily come off today's satellite feed. It was a wish. A family, a home, some place where you belong, a place where you're loved, where you, where you can love somebody, and uh, God knows I need to love somebody. Love never was just a straight thing, as the court has now confirmed. It's a human thing. So all these uh, liberation movements were just ongoing, and the one that really gave it nuclear power or incredible power, all these liberation movements in the United States of America, was the anti-war movement of the 1960s. That anti-war movement, which really took place on the campuses, was the uh, galvanizing event which turned the university campuses Marxist in the extreme. I think there's one more bit about the, the anti-war movement. Am I correct? Let's just play that, and then we'll, we'll finish up. This is, this, is, this, is, this is the thing that really, really, really fired up our academic uh, community. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. In October of 1967, 100,000 anti-war protesters protested mostly peacefully at the Lincoln Memorial, but late in the afternoon, about 50,000 protesters moved on to the Pentagon. It is at the Pentagon where the first test of strength comes. 
Military police contain the crowd, but clashes soon break out. The protesters pelted soldiers who were standing guard at the Pentagon with fish, feces, even some rocks. The two-day protest ends with over 600 arrested and the widespread opinion that the demonstration made everyone a loser. This is one of the places where the rhetoric begins to shift to presenting the anti-war movement as a part of the counterculture. The news cameras focused on these shaggy-haired hippies clashing with the clean-cut military men. I think people remember the image of the protester putting a daisy into the barrel of a rifle. This is when the kind of political performance of the counterculture really came to the fore. And the anti-war movement becomes kind of a cultural phenomenon as much as it is a political one. So th this anti-war movement really took place on the campuses of the United States of America. Uh, my father was a, a university professor at the University of Minnesota. He was uh, at the front lines of this anti-war movement. I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday. And it was a Marxist movement in the, in the universities. This is something that is not really well understood. Uh, the uh, Atlantic Chartal, Charter and the concept of self-determination, the basic underlying, well, there was another thing was these kids just didn't want to go get killed in a war. There was a lot of just cowardice that was involved in this anti-war movement, and I know that because I was there. But beyond that, the, the, the true philosophical sentiment was what business did the United States government have in Vietnam? Vietnamese people should develop their own governance, their own self-governance, and they should be free from the intervention of the strong, which was the United States government. And the United States government was over there allegedly fighting, uh, you know, communism, and it was really a proxy war uh, against uh, China and the Soviet Union, much like the Ukraine is now a proxy war uh, between uh, China and, the so and Russia against the United States. I mean, these proxy wars wipe out indigenous populations cruelly. It's a place where the superpowers test their weapons and their capabilities. And, the, you know, it was well known to the American people that there was a mass death going on in Vietnam. I think 58,000 Americans died there and millions and millions and millions of Vietnamese. And based on that Atlantic Charter, the concept of self-determination, there was a philosophical root, a righteous uh, position to take that the United States had no business fighting in foreign countries. And that's what that was about. But hidden in that was a Marxist movement. This was an attempt to take over the country using this anti-war uh, sentiment as a cudgel. And it completely galvanized and changed the, the composition of the academic um, uh, population, the people that were teaching in the universities. They transitioned from being fairly conservative to being progressively Marxist. I think today 95% of the uh, professoriate identifies as liberal or leftist. There's almost no conservative voices left in most of the universities, even though the, the East, East Coast, you know, prestigious universities were all founded to um, teach and to promulgate Christian values. So those universities have really, again, not the institutions, but the people in the institutions. These institutions were taken over by Darwinists because Marxism is a kind of Darwinism. It is a survival of the fittest, the strong will prevail, the ends justify the means. This is all part of this kind of Marxist uh, 
reality that's playing out in our universities. And it's juxtaposed against faith, which is a completely different orientation of, of man and spirit. So this is, I said last time, it's like a tornado. These two ideologies are hitting each other like two storm fronts, and we're in this tornado now in this country, and it's going to get sorted out to some degree. But I think that it's important for me as an American citizen to understand what has happened with these movements. I'm not here to comment today if the movements are right or wrong, good or bad. I'm just commenting on what's going on in the academy. Now, this is the 1619 Project. This is a really a wonderful book that every American uh, could take the time to read uh, because the account of slavery or the experience of slaves, black slaves in this country, uh, is something that is horrifying, and it's very eloquently uh, written in this book. And I read this book very carefully, and I, I hope many people read it. Of course, it's a reviled book on the right, uh, because this is you know part of the critical race theory uh, critique. But I read it very carefully, and I really found this uh, Marxist kind of orientation in the book, because the book really, its punchline after opening, opening me up with all these very graphic and detailed uh, historical uh, review of slavery and firsthand accounts of slavery and the impact of slavery, and it's just really well done. But I found a, a, a paragraph I want to read very carefully because this really is what I'm trying to share with you today. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not our institutions or our constitution. It's the failure of men, not the failure of God. In which case, the price of equality, or at least the promise of an equal society, is vigilance against those who would make government the tool of hierarchy. In other words, capitalism always has a hierarchy because some people get better rewards than others. That's what freedom is all about. If I invest more in my well-being than the next guy, I'm more well than he is. And in a, in a in a free society, that is okay. In a communist society, we all have the exact same level of well-being. So if I could be exceptionally well, my wellness has to be diminished so that I'm the same as everybody else. That's what we're really talking about here. The skill to ensue and pursue well-being. I didn't say materialism. I said well-being. So it's a vigilance against those who would make government the tool of hierarchy. No. And in turn, we must recognize that this struggle to secure democracy against privilege on the one hand and to secure privilege against democracy on the other is the unresolvable conflict of American life. It is the push and pull that will last for as long as the republic stands. In other words, the battle between hierarchy and democracy, in other words, they're using democracy as a cover or a code word for socialism. That is a bit of sophistry. Democracy is not socialism. This is tricky. These are very smart academics. They're replacing the word socialism with the word democracy. This is called rebranding. Democracy and socialism are two different things. Democracy can devolve into socialism. That's why we have a constitutional republic. So the question we're asking ourselves, the question I'm asking myself is, 
Do I want to have the right to pursue my well-being to the full extent of my capability? Or do I want to have my well-being capped by a governmentally imposed limit? That's what all this fight is about. That's what this fight is about. And I'm going to say that when we socialize our population, we do reduce risk, but we also preclude miracles. The price of this socialism is the truncation or the elimination of creativity. And that's a hell of a price to pay so that we can all be the same. Because the essence of being a human being is my creativity. And if someone else chooses not to be creative, that's their choice. My life is the sum of all my choices. Your life is the sum of all your choices. And how convenient it would be for me to not have to choose, because then I would never have to take a risk. I risk everything I do every day. I'm a risk taker. If someone else is not a risk taker, that's okay. I'm not critical of them. I don't think I'm better than they are. I don't think I'm worse than they are. We have different, we're all snowflakes, right? We're all different. So this, 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 these academics are so smart. They're teaching this book at universities and colleges all over the country. Probably most of them teach this book. And in this book, after you get opened up emotionally about the ravages of slavery, and I think every American needs to read this book, to understand the slave experience. It was very painful for me to read it. I cried. But I'm not so stupid when I'm crying to mistake democracy and socialism. They're not the same thing. And this is what these Marxist academics are doing, and they have complete control of our institutions. And that's why we have these unresolvable conflicts, because they don't want the republic to stand. They're saying there's a push and a pull, a yin and a yang, and a fire and ice between hierarchy and democracy, which is not true. It's between hierarchy and socialism. And their goal is to destroy the constitutional republic and get rid of that document which ascribes natural rights granted to me by my creator. That's what they're aiming for. And if you don't know God, it probably makes perfect sense to you because you don't care. It's a fairy tale, a fiction, a fugazi. But for the people who do know God or have ecstatic experiences or have experienced God in their lives or experienced miracles in their life, they know that they are possessing something, a knowledge, and really historically it's been a secret knowledge, that other people don't have. And I think it's the time when this Secret knowledge needs to become public domain. And that's what the Internet's all about. It was about opening up what had formerly required decades of study, occult knowledge about how to become well. And well-being is freedom. And freedom is well-being. And it involves a spiritual life. And replace that by a purely materialist approach to life. Material in terms of science, and material in terms of these liberation movements, because when you make them Marxist, and that's what they did, they hijacked these very organic liberation movements, which most of them were born out of some kind of religious sentiment, and they hijacked them 
And they made them about deconstructing the United States of America in the constitution of our country to say that the country itself, our political ideology itself was the cause and was the original sin, which led to all the suffering that exists in our country today. And either they are wrong intellectually or they're scammers. I don't know which I'm not in their head. But it is not the political formation of our country or the idea of self-governance that's wrong or the idea of a constitutional republic that's wrong. It's the business model that men, the failure of men to focus on well-being as the only reason that we have governance and the only reason we have religion and the only reason we have family is to enhance and improve human well-being. And instead, it became about greed and lust and sloth, you know, the traditional deadly sins, because we have a human nature that has not changed since the first rock slew the first brother. And that rock now is an ICBM tipped with a nuclear missile. Same idea. We're going to hit somebody in the head with a rock, only today that rock will kill millions of people like that. So, you know, the the point I'm trying to bring out in the few minutes I have left is, is that faith has been diminished. It's been diminished by the scientific method and the benefits of science, which seem to indicate that science can produce for us what the world of the spirit cannot. And at the same time, there's an intellectual movement which seeks to undermine faith and seeks to undermine traditional values because that Marxist sentiment or that equality the equality is meant to redress hierarchy. Well, this is a decision we're all going to make now. Which way do we want to go as America? Do we all want to be the same? Do we want to be ruled by a state that dictates the terms of our well-being? Well, we're already there. We have socialized medicine. We've already reached that point where someone is telling us what well-being is, and enforcing that well-being on all the people. I'm a different voice. I say that my well-being comes from within myself. As we go through these podcasts together as a community, I want to share what I've learned because I've struggled and studied my entire life to understand this concept of well-being. And it, it really is an occult knowledge from two perspectives. One, it takes a lot of work to get it, and, you know, most people don't want to work that hard. And two... It has been hidden in traditional uh, religious and political and social structures, and it, it is something that you have to work to get. So people don't want to work that hard. And there's, I just had, a, I just had someone tell me the other day that I wasn't qualified because I didn't do this, that, thus, and so. And I answered her, "That's a scam. I'm not falling for your scam. I'm fully qualified." You're just using a set of criteria on me to stifle my voice. And to that I say, fuck off, Diane. I don't believe that. I am capable of doing whatever I want to. I'm willing to do the study and the hard work and do the research to pursue and to create whatever reality that I want to get to. And I'm willing to die trying. See, that's the thing. We're all going to die. You can die sitting at home on your couch looking at porno on your phone, or you can die trying to increase your well-being. It's really up to you. And I'm not being critical of people watching porno today. 
I'm just saying, is that really well-being? You know, is drinking a sugary soft drink really well-being? When's the last time you went outside for a walk? Did you walk five miles today out in the sun, looking at the trees, smelling the air? It's not hard to be well. You need to be outside in nature. Nature is its own well-being. And we need to just recover those basic, simple concepts. We all used to live on the farm. We were outside every day. Of course you could eat bread and sugar and heavy food when you were expending four or five, 6,000 calories a day being a farmer. But if you don't change that diet when you're sitting at a desk, you're going to get obese. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. We need to come together as a community and support each other in real concepts of well-being. It's not hard to do. And because the internet made it much easier, they're suppressing communication. They're suppressing the natural impulse for self-governance and for freedom because all of us can find this freedom. Millions of people can find this podcast. And of course, if we all start dealing with well-being and we all start to reject unwell things, like for example, hey, nuclear war is not good for me. I'm going to reject it. And we start to be a chorus of people that reject obviously anti-human scientific or sociological political ideas. If we just reject it because it'll kill me, it's going to go away. There's billions of us and just a few of them. Their power over me is based on my willingness to accept their power. And I don't accept it. I do not accept it. I reject it. And I ask you to join me in a community of people that reject any power that is against humanity, against human well-being, against the development of human intelligence and human sensitivity and creativity, that we might join together as a world community that, re that comes together and fosters a pro-human future for the human race. And we're not going to find that in technology. We're not going to find that from doctors. We're not going to find that in the university. These people are completely given over to Darwinism. We need to create our own institutions, our own ways of doing things. I don't want to fight with these people. I just don't want to do business with them. I don't, I'm not asking for a fight. If they come to us seeking a fight, I must defend myself. But I will not attack. I will ensue my own world, and we will come together and create a world that is focused on humanity. And these people will just drift away and become irrelevant because they are irrelevant when we make them irrelevant. But it's up to our self-governance. It's up to our well-being. It's up to our community. So I want to thank you for joining me today. I hope you subscribe. If you like what you heard, please hit the like belt button. Please think about well-being, and I look forward to seeing you soon again.